The opinions expressed in the following episode do not necessarily reflect those of the Minds of Madness podcast. Listener discretion is advised. Erin Bellinger had her whole life ahead of her. She'd relocated to Deltona, Florida from New England and was excited to start a new life with her boyfriend. Her main reason for choosing to move to Deltona was so she could help take care of her grandparents' summer home. But there was one problem. In July 2004, some unsavory guests had taken up residence in the breezeway of the home, turning the property into a party house. Erin had no idea when she removed the squatter's belongings just how horrific the situation would become. Join me now as we take a look at one of the most violent crimes in Volusia County history, where you'll hear how a disturbed gang leader out for revenge rallied his young followers to reenact one of LA's most sensational mass murders. Brittany, a local resident of Deltona in 2004, vividly remembers first hearing the shocking news that horrified her humble town. On this particular day, we had the Today Show on, and I remember that because LL Cool J was on there. And so I'm home, my mom is home, and during the performance, the news broke in, and They were saying, we have a breaking news alert. There is a house in Deltona where bodies were found. And so me and my mother stopped and then we turned and we looked at the TV. And when they said it was Telford Lane, Telford Lane was only maybe less than a mile from our house. And so we're like, that's right up the street. And... They were saying that these bodies were found as well as a body of a dog. And we're like, what the hell is going on here? Six are dead here. Four men, two women, and a dog. There were signs of a struggle. Bodies strewn all over the house. It was August 6th, and Brittany was 19 years old. And before the news broke, she'd been preparing to hunker down with her family for what would be the first of four hurricanes to hit Florida that summer. This particular time of year, we had a series of storms, and one storm was actually coming our way, and that was Charlie. We were watching this storm because they were saying, hey, this storm is going to get strong. You have to watch this, see what's going on. Because if you live in Florida and a storm is coming, there was a series of things you have to do. As Hurricane Charlie loomed on the horizon, and more horrifying news about Telford Lane began to emerge, Brittany recalls hearing the piercing sound of sirens heading down her street. We had the doors open and everything, and we're like, let's go on ahead and close those. But curiosity got the better of Brittany and her mother, and like in any small town, it didn't take long for them to gather their own intel on the situation. 
As they got into their car to drive by the Telford Lane residence, they noticed police cars at the Burger King on the corner. What they soon found out was that two employees who never made it into work that morning were among the victims reported on the news. Once the story started piecing together, it really shocked the whole town. Dalton is a very small town. Mind you, I'm saying that this is a small town because everybody knows everybody. If you don't know them, you, you know someone who does. In 2004, if you ask anybody who still lives in Florida, they'll tell you about this case. But sometimes, living in a small town where everyone knows everyone can have its downfalls. It would certainly become one of the factors that led to the massacre at Telford Lane. With a community of over 70,000 people at the time, Deltona had become a popular haven for snowbirds. Deltona is one of those places where, like, the retirees come. They have a house to calm down as soon as it gets cold. Now, I left Florida in 2010, but even now, squatting is an issue because so many homes are left empty for six months out of the year. Joseph and Norma Reedy from Maine were among the unlucky retirees to have their property overtaken by squatters. Their summer home was a quaint bungalow located on Providence Boulevard, a central road running south along the eastern edge of Deltona. The Reedies had made arrangements for their 22-year-old granddaughter, Erin Bellinger, to keep an eye on their property. Originally from Myrtle Beach, Erin later moved with her family to New Hampshire. It was while she was working in a nursing home in Massachusetts, she met her boyfriend, 30-year-old Francisco Ayo Ramon, also known as Flacco. After moving to Deltona, the couple found a home to rent on Telford Lane. They also found jobs working together at the Burger King on Elkham Boulevard, just four miles up the street. To help with rent, the couple invited their co-worker, 19-year-old Michelle Nathan, to move in with them. Eventually, her boyfriend, 34-year-old Anthony Vega, also moved in. On top of being co-workers and roommates, Michelle also helped Aaron clean her grandparents' property and the two developed a close relationship. Although working at Burger King paid the bills, it was merely a means to an end for Michelle. Her ultimate goal was to join the reserves and eventually become a veterinarian. When the roommates weren't working or caring for the Reedy's property, the two young women could often be found hanging out with two other mutual friends and co-workers, 17-year-old Jonathan Gleason and 28-year-old Roberto Gonzalez. Like Michelle, Jonathan was passionate about animals and an avid PETA supporter. He was also crazy about Aaron's dachshund, George. Their shared love of animals had been one of the driving forces behind their instant connection. On top of working at Burger King, Jonathan was also a talented stage performer and dancer, as well as a lead singer of a band called Karma Diver. However, his lifelong ambition was to become a doctor. Both Anthony and Roberto, also known as Tito, were natives to the Bronx and had moved to Deltona in hopes of better opportunities. Tito had hoped to secure a manager position at Burger King so he could eventually bring his seven-year-old daughter to live with him. As Erin went about her days, routinely stopping by her grandparents' vacation home, she discovered a mattress and clothing inside the breezeway. 
It was July 30, 2004, and Aaron did what any responsible caretaker would do and reported the intruders to police. Two of the squatters were Amanda Francis and Brandon Sheets, who told the reporting deputy their friend Troy Victorino had given them permission to be there and that he'd been given permission by Joshua Spencer. Joshua was Aaron's cousin and had lived with her briefly when she first moved into Telford Lane. But Josh was asked to leave after he wasn't able to pay his portion of the rent and began stealing from Aaron. Norma Reedy had given him a key when he was living with her, but thought he'd returned it. Deputy McDonald advised Aaron to inspect the home and make sure nothing had been stolen or damaged. The following day, Aaron met with another officer to report a DVD VCR and CD player missing. Items left by the squatters included a bunch of papers with Troy Victorino's name on them. When Aaron asked police what she should do with the items left behind, she was told to do whatever she liked with them. That same day, Troy showed up unannounced on Aaron's doorstep, basically threatening her to give his things back. Brittany explains just how easy it was to track someone down in a town like Deltona. I'll go back to what I said, Deltona is a small town. If you don't know who you are trying to find, you will find a person who knows who you are trying to locate. It was that kind of a town. At 27 years old, Troy was an intimidating force, towering over most people at 6 feet 6 inches tall, weighing 300 pounds. He was also no stranger to crime and was known by most in the community as a violent man. In fact, Troy had recently been arrested just a few days prior for assault, but had posted bail the following day. Aaron agreed to meet Troy at the Providence Boulevard home at 6 p.m. the next day. Instead, Francisco met him, passing Troy two bags of clothing. But Troy insisted some of his things were still missing, including an Xbox game console. That same day, Troy Victorino met with Deputy McDonald to report his belongings as stolen. He was advised by the deputy to make a list of his missing items before they could do anything about it. Troy said he would take matters into his own hands. Later that day, Aaron was stunned to find a mob of angry young women armed with knives pounding on her door at Telford Lane, demanding she come outside. How many are there? I don't know. I'm in my room, and I just hear them. They're yelling for me. Okay, well, who are they? Do they know you? I don't know who they are. Okay, can you look out and see them? No, I really don't want to. Okay, do they know? Does your boyfriend know that you're calling? No. Okay, so can you call for your boyfriend or something? Find out who they are and how many they are? Yes, hold on. It does about four or five. Okay, and you don't know them at all? No. Ugh. What are they yelling? They're just yelling for you? Yeah. Okay, and you have no idea who they were or why, who they are, why they would no, come there for I you? Think, I think they're here because we had a problem today. I had to call the police today mm -hmm. because there were people staying inside my grandmother's house. They shouldn't have been there. So you do know who they are then? Well, I don't know the girls. No, no, but you know who they are and why they're there. This isn't just somebody who walked off the street. Yeah, no, no, no. Yeah. Okay. As deputies arrived on the scene, the young women ran off, but not before slashing a few tires of the cars that sat in the driveway. 
However, no arrests were made. Badly shaken, Erin called her father in New Hampshire, who tried to reassure her that it was little more than punks looking for trouble. Although he offered Erin to come back home if she felt afraid, Erin decided to stick it out, hopeful the whole mess would soon be over. After falling asleep, Erin and her boyfriend were shocked back awake at 3.45 a.m. The irate strangers had come back. 911, where's the emergency? 
Once the story started piecing together, it really shocked the whole town. The person to discover the gruesome scene at Telford Lane was Christopher Carroll. After stopping by the residence at 7 a.m. on the way to pick up Anthony and Tito for a painting job, on his way to pick them up, his girlfriend, who worked with the two other people from the residence at Burger King, told him they hadn't arrived for work that morning. After knocking several times, the front door to the Telford Lane home suddenly popped open, revealing a scene straight out of a horror film. What Christopher saw next will never be erased from his mind. Uh, it's, it's as police and a forensic team arrived at the crime scene, the hunt for the murderers had begun. On August 7th, they managed to track down Troy Victorino, who was initially arrested on a probation violation. Jerome Hunter, who happened to be with Troy when he was brought in, was also asked to go to the sheriff's office for questioning. That's when he confessed to his part in the gruesome murders and described the details of that horrific night. According to Jerome, before heading to Telford Lane on August 6th, Troy Victorino, Michael Salas, Robert Cannon, and himself stopped by a 7-Eleven. Next, they swung by Aaron's grandparents' property because Troy wanted to burglarize the home. After he took what he wanted, the group stopped by a bar so Troy could make a quick appearance. Before failing to steal a car, they stopped by Troy's current residence so he could pick up a hoodie. Their next stop was Telford Lane. They parked around the corner, wearing scarves over their faces, armed with knives and bats. Troy went around the house and peeked through the windows pinpointing who was home and where they were located. Once he got back around to the front, he bashed the front door down with a single kick. Jonathan Gleason was asleep on a recliner by the front door and the first to be attacked. As Jerome began savagely beating him with a bat, Jonathan cried out he didn't live in the home and begged Jerome to stop. Ignoring his pleas, Jerome continued to pummel Jonathan until he stopped moving. He then stabbed him in the chest and abdomen several times to make sure he was dead, before joining Michael Salas, who was attacking Tito Gonzalez. Although Tito was much bigger and stronger than his teenage attacker, once Jerome joined in, he stood little chance of defending himself, and they knocked him to the ground. Tito's head and face were then violently bashed with baseball bats until he, too, stopped moving. In another room, Troy confronted Aaron and her boyfriend, Francisco, who were just waking up to the sound of the commotion. Troy mercilessly beat Francisco, cutting his throat, all while Aaron helplessly watched in horror and screamed. Once Francisco was no longer moving, Troy focused his attention on Aaron, grabbing her leg and savagely beating her face with a bat. He then stabbed her repeatedly, but Troy's barbaric act wasn't over. 
As Aaron lay bloodied and beaten beyond recognition, Troy violated her body. Jerome Hunter and Robert Cannon confronted Anthony before Troy entered the room. Exchanging words briefly in Spanish, Troy then struck him in the face. Once on the ground, Troy continued to beat him over and over again. Jerome then slashed his neck with a knife. Jerome knew Michelle was somewhere in the house and tore apart one of the bedrooms until he found her. Huddled and trembling beneath a pile of clothes in the closet, Jerome then dragged her out as she pleaded for him to stop. But Jerome showed no mercy and didn't hesitate to hit Michelle in the head, then stabbed her repeatedly. Even Aaron's dog was heartlessly stomped to death. After leaving the house, Troy went back inside and stabbed the victims again to be sure they were all dead. It was one of the worst massacres ever witnessed in the state of Florida. Aaron's face had been so badly beaten, she had to be identified through the help of dental specialists. Needless to say, all of Deltona was clamoring for answers, especially the heartbroken families. Two days after the six victims' bodies were found, police announced that four men had been taken into custody. Michael Salas, Robert Cannon, Jerome Hunter, and Troy Victorino. While announcing the arrests, Sheriff Ben Johnson stated it was a senseless crime for a senseless reason. During the investigation, the bloody bats were recovered by a dive team in a local pond, revealing DNA evidence. Robert Cannon's Ford Expedition was also impounded and examined, revealing trace amounts of DNA evidence recovered from clothing found in the vehicle. Troy's boots were also collected as evidence where blood from the victims was matched. However, Troy claimed someone had stolen his boots and he wasn't wearing them that evening. In fact, according to Troy, he'd never been at the Telford Lane residence at all that night. However, security footage recovered from a 7-Eleven that same evening proved differently, where Troy could be clearly seen wearing the very distinct size 12 Lux boots. As the details of the case were constructed over the next two years, the grisly specifics of the murders began to leak out into the community. People were shocked not only at the severity of the crime, but also the motivation behind them. Once the, the Xbox part came out, that's when people were like, they did this crime over an Xbox? Like, it's an Xbox. And even now, in 2021, it still sticks with me. See, I'm a gamer, and I game on Xbox, but I couldn't imagine kicking in somebody's door and going to use a baseball bat to murder everybody in that house and their dog over an Xbox. But then a couple of years ago, there was a true crime show that did profile this. And then you find out that it was a lot more to this story than what they were saying at first. The crime gained national recognition, sparking intense interest in the formerly quiet town. Whenever you mention this crime, it's a sour spot for a lot of people. 
you don't want your town associated with something like that, but that's what happened. And also keep in mind, this crime was so bad, even the major news outlets came down. We are talking Fox News, CNN, the MSNBC, they all came out there. All four men were tried together, overseen by Judge William A. Parsons. Both Michael Salas and Robert Cannon said they wanted no part in the murder plan, but feared for their lives when it came to Troy. However, a Deltona jail guard claimed, when asked if he had felt remorse for the murders, Michael answered no. During the trial, prosecutors showed crime scene photos of the house, where blood appeared to cover every surface. According to Jerome, the initial plan was to shoot everyone at Telford Lane, but they had trouble tracking down enough ammunition. Their backup plan was to round up aluminum bats from kids in the surrounding neighborhood. Throughout the entire case, Troy maintained his innocence, despite all three accomplices placing him at the scene, as well as DNA evidence confirming his presence. Not to mention, his size 12 lugs boot prints found throughout the house and the front door. Troy's lawyers brought up traumatizing childhood experiences he endured and a history of mental illness as explanations for his violent criminal past. The oldest of six children, Troy grew up in a part of Queens, New York, known as Jamaica. At 11 years old, his parents moved their family to Deltona, but by that point, Troy's troubled experiences had already begun. Troy's sister testified that growing up, she and her siblings had been subjected to corporal punishment by their parents. Looking back, Troy's mother admits her and her husband's treatment of their children had been abusive, both physically and emotionally. As Troy's lawyers looked further into their client's history, they discovered he'd been molested as a toddler. At age four, he suffered a head trauma. At age eight, Troy had become suicidal. At age nine, he spent six weeks in a psychiatric hospital, claiming he was hearing voices cursing him. There he was diagnosed with early schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, and atypical depression. His first felony charge was at age 10. At 14, he attempted suicide again and suffered another head trauma. At 15, Troy committed grand theft and arson, followed up by four more crimes of a similar nature. Then in 1996, just eight weeks after being released from prison, Troy viciously attacked a former friend named Michael Stern, beating him so badly he required 18 hours of reconstructive surgery. Although Michael managed to survive, Troy avoided being arrested for months because witnesses were too afraid to testify against him. He avoided a first-degree attempted murder charge by pleading to aggravated battery and received another five-year sentence. At the time of the slayings, Troy was still on probation and out on bail for another felony battery charge arising from a July 29th assault. The psychiatrist who examined Troy for his defense believed a scan of his brain showed abnormalities in his frontal lobe, although the doctor did state that the vast majority of cases with this abnormality don't go around killing people. People with a frontal lobe impairment tend to have an inability or difficulty in being able to stop themselves. Dr. Christina Frazzani explains 
while bringing up Troy's childhood traumas, his mental health and frontal lobe abnormalities were relevant to his defense. Low frontal lobe activity can lead to a person not really understanding the consequences of their behavior and acting on impulses without even realizing what might come next. Poor executive functioning, which is a result of low frontal lobe activity, might lead to a person acting before they're thinking through those actions and how they might play out. So while they could understand the difference between right and wrong, so they wouldn't meet criteria for an, an insanity defense, they might not really be able to control themselves or act accordingly. Children with a history of trauma like physical abuse from a parent or another guardian or sexual abuse from a caretaker or another adult really requires a lot of support and treatment to process and heal from that trauma and not just support as an adult. It requires actual support and intervention from childhood and it requires the parents or the guardians who were in charge during that time to support and help correct that experience. Without that treatment and support, children might feel so alone and so full of fear and anxiety, it makes it really difficult for them to function. Post-traumatic stress disorder in childhood is a type of anxiety disorder, and it occurs after that exposure to the disturbing event, after prolonged exposure to ongoing child abuse, in addition to the lack of protection and treatment from the same adults that are supposed to be nurturing that child, it leaves the child to really feel alone and terrified and eventually angry, mistrusting, and acting out. Child abuse can look like physical abuse from a parent or guardian, but it can also involve name-calling, emotional manipulation, neglect, which might include just a lack of basic needs like food and shelter, could mean a child is left alone and unable to take care of themselves, or even deprived of emotional support and reassurance. So frequently that they develop severe anxiety, anger, aggression, and lack of remorse. In cases with mental health being an issue legally, there's a big difference between pleading insanity, which would change the na nature of the entire case, and having mental health issues that might impact just the sentencing of a case. So the person is still held accountable, but it might be a consideration for their punishment or their sentence. A person might understand right from wrong and not be considered mentally impaired during the moment of a crime, but they still might have emotional disorders that can be a consideration when it comes to that sentencing. On August 2nd, 2006, nearly two years after Erin and her friends were brutally murdered, all four men were found guilty of first-degree murder. Troy Victorino and Jerome Hunter were sentenced to death while Robert Cannon and Michael Salas were sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. Judge Parsons addressed each of the men at their sentencing, stating, You have not only forfeited your right to live among us, you forfeited your right to live at all. He called their crimes conscienceless and unnecessarily torturous. Although Robert Cannon attempted to cut a deal with the state, his sentence was held. Ten years later, Troy and Jerome's death sentences were overturned following a Florida Supreme Court ruling in October 2016. The ruling stated that Florida's death penalty was unconstitutional, in part 
because it didn't require a unanimous jury vote. Prosecutors are again seeking the death penalty against Troy and Jerome by redoing the penalty phase of their trials. They're not going to walk out. Because the way that crime was, they're not going to walk free. They're not. Especially in Florida. You're not, I mean, no, that's not going to happen. He can appeal all he wants, but he's not going to walk free. With something like this where people were brutally murdered on top of their dog, you are not going to be free. You are going to keep your ass in that jail for the rest of your life. The people of Deltona saw that the system designed to protect them had failed them, and they were scared. The main impact was my sleep. A couple of weeks after the crime occurred, I wasn't sleeping throughout the entire night. Because that was the thought in my head, was if somebody kicked my door in, would I wake up to hear it? Because it did scare a lot of people. Like, it made everyone there think that, like, if somebody kicked my door in at night, would I wake up? Aaron's father, Bill, holds his nephew, Joshua, partially responsible for Aaron's murder. Aaron's grandparents, Joseph and Norma Reedy, recall meeting Troy on several occasions when Joshua brought him by to hang out at their Florida home. It's likely Troy may never have been squatting there if Joshua hadn't given him permission. It's also likely Troy wouldn't have found and ultimately murdered Aaron and her friends if Joshua hadn't told Troy who took his belongings. Nothing in Joshua's actions leading up to his cousin's violent end could be considered illegal. As a result, Joshua will never be held accountable for this horrific crime. When listening to Aaron's frantic and terrified pleas for help, it's clear the system put in place to protect the community from people like Troy could have done more. Biggest thing for me was how the cops went about it. I kind of started to trust them a lot less. Because they could have done a lot more. If somebody's squatting, that is a crime. I mean, that was the biggest thing for me, where you are told your whole life the cops are there to help you. And when I watched the crime show that did this, and you hear the 911 calls, you hear the panic in her voice, but they didn't help her. The family's heartbreak only intensified when they learned the men were trying to overturn their convictions, facing the possibility of seeing their children's murderers in court once again. Brittany, who has long since left Florida, empathizes with the families who lost their loved ones. Aaron's mom had a banner on the back of her SUV in remembrance of Aaron. And I remember her mother walked into a corner store and I was in the store when she walked in. So now, mind you, you walk in a store and it's, you hear a lot of noise. Everybody's talking and everything. And I was going to work on this day. So when I grabbed my drink, I realized it got real quiet all of a sudden. And I just so happened to turn as she's walking out of the door and the clerk goes, that's Aaron's mom. And I turned and I look and the look on her face, like time had passed 
but you saw the despair still in her face. And that's something I won't ever forget because she lost her daughter one and she lost her in such a brutal way. I hope that her family has been able to heal from this because it affected them and it it did affect the whole town because it's like this doesn't occur here like yeah you'll get stealing or drugs but that murder was was bad it was i just hope that they're okay i feel like this man trying to overturn his conviction like he needs to stop because they don't need this as an observer Brittany for a long time has felt that if Aaron's claims had been taken seriously, things might have ended differently. How had a disturbed, violent criminal with a vengeful spirit managed to recruit so many to blindly assist him in such a barbaric crime? It's a question that will forever linger for the residents of Deltona, even those that left the community long ago. I'd like to thank Dr. Christina Frazzani and Brittany for participating in this episode. This episode was a listener suggestion, and if you have a story or a case you might want us to cover, you can contact us through our website at mindsofmadnesspodcast.com. And now I would like to introduce a podcast that also covered the case in our last episode on Megan Hyatt, so if you'd like to hear a different take on Megan's story, you should go check it out. Military Murder Hi, Minds of Madness listeners. My name is Margot, and I am the host of Military Murder, a podcast that pulls back the curtain on cases that are finally getting the media attention they deserve. In 2020, we were all rocked by the disappearance of Vanessa Guillen, a soldier out of Fort Hood, Texas. Well, Military Murder is about cases just like this, murders that occur around the world at the hands of soldiers, sailors, Marines, and airmen, and sometimes even veterans. Military Murder has discussed family annihilators, serial killers, and people so evil, they have made it on America's most wanted list. But most of them you've never even heard of. New episodes of Military Murder are available every Monday, wherever you listen to podcasts. And with over 60 episodes in the library, you will have plenty of content to binge. Now go on, subscribe and listen to Military Murder. The Minds of Madness can be found on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, TuneIn, Google Play, and all other podcast platforms. Ad-free episodes of this show are available on Stitcher Premium. If you would like to support this show and get some extra perks, including extra content, early release, and ad-free episodes, go to patreon.com slash madnesspod. 
you can find our website by going to mindsofmadnesspodcast.com. To find us on Facebook and Instagram, search The Minds of Madness. And on Twitter, using the handle at MadnessPod. And finally, the closing track, Feel the Madness, is provided by The Funkors. You can find them at the record label's website by going to goldenerrorrecords.com.au slash G-E. I hope they can't get in cause I'm not prepared to run I can feel the madness Someone's standing at my door I hope they can't get in cause I'm not prepared to run